you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, back where Mike uh, read, we'll, we'll jump in there in just a moment. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful that you're here. We are striving to glorify God uh, this morning together, and I hope you've been encouraged as I have, singing about His love, singing about His um, awesome presence, um, and in the center of everything, the center of our lives, the center of everything in this world. So please stay around with us and, and let us get to know you better. Let us uh, meet you and, um, and try, to, try to encourage you in your, in your walk with the Lord as well. Do you have a family member that is really, really into the heritage of the family, the family tree? You know, they have everything marked back way, way into when you jumped off the ship and got off the Mayflower and the Santa or whatever. They got it all. But maybe that's you. Maybe you're that guy or that girl in your family, right? And, and, and you are really interested in that. Recently, there's been, uh, you know, you have the Ancestry.com you can get into. But they also have like this mail order thing called 23andMe. You send in whatever samples, and they send you back. Here's where your DNA kind of lines out geographically across the world, and people spend a lot of money on that. That's been a big thing. Um, why? You wonder why? why? Why have that fascination? I think part of it is just simple curiosity. We're, we're curious creatures. Um, how did I arrive where I am? You know, who was the first person to come to Amarillo or wherever closest your family lives? Who homesteaded? You know, having these, these, uh, these curious um, uh, developments in our mind, where did I come from? Just beyond my parents, you know, or my immediate family. And I'll just say one thing, too. If you're like me, you might have a rough family tree. There's still hope for you. You know who else had a really rough family tree? Jesus. There were some uh, interesting developments in his family tree, pretty messed up, but God used him for the ultimate glory. But I think another reason why you may think that that's appealing is that we all derive a sense of identity from our family, from where we are from, who we really are. You remember, maybe your parents said, remember who you are when you went out. In fact, Paul even felt that way about his heritage. If you remember, um, he says in 2 Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. 2 Timothy 1.3. You know, God knew that about us, that we would be that kind of people, and he knew where we came from would have a bearing on our identity and who we are. The passage that Mike read demonstrates this. Okay, Look at Ephesians 2 again with me. We're not going to look at the whole section that he read, but the context, Paul is explaining how God took the Gentiles away from the promises of God and brought them near. They were once far off. Brought them near to God in the promises that he gave to the new covenant, Israel, and grafted them in, but he doesn't use that term, but brought them together to make one through the cross, abolishing the law that they could not keep. And he explains there that they were foreigners, far off, but now welcomed into the kingdom. Beautiful picture. Enough said. But he goes one step further in the word picture. Look at verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are members of the household of God. Now, household carries with it lots of different things. We're not talking about structure here. This is the, the same usage is used over in 1 Timothy 5, that if a person does not provide of their, for their own household, then they're worse than an infidel and they've denied the faith. Okay, so he's talking about their own family. So read that again. We are members of the family of God. God has given us a new last name, a new identity, a new purpose in Jesus Christ, a new story of where we're from. And that introduces the preaching theme for this year. Once a month, we are going to dive into this concept of the family of God in the Scriptures. Why would God create a family? What would He do with it? What was His intent? How does this new family that we find ourselves in function? What are the roles in the family? But before we get into all that, I want us to think about two things this morning. I want us to think about the root of the family, and I want us to think about the bond of the family. Kind of dissecting, what is that? What is the family of God? I want you to turn over to Isaiah and the, the, uh, the ninth chapter. Isaiah 9. And I'm going to give a caveat here before we jump in to these passages to talk about our roots. And that is, this is not a New Testament comeuppance that all of a sudden Paul just said, yeah, it'd be nice to say that we're a family of God. This is a plan in the mind of God that I hope I can convince you to this morning. And secondly, the scriptures that we're going to put into our minds and into our hearts is what our New Testament family our first century brothers and sisters, would study. They would have these holy scriptures to look at to consider who they are, to consider their identity. So let's talk about that. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What an incredible passage. Some of these, uh, some of these uh, <laughs> hallmarks and, and home, uh, what's that, Hobby Lobby, they'll put that on you know, a, a thing, because that's, that's a beautiful passage. But did you notice that there's one description of Jesus that's odd? Eternal Father? Everlasting Father? Did you know that the Old Testament prophesies that Jesus will have kids? He's going to be a father. Now, I know the, I know the story, Austin. That's, that's not true. Jesus doesn't have kids. He's single. doesn't have kids on. There's more. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 with me. Beautiful passage describing to us the suffering that God's servant would go through. 
and how God would bring us to Himself through that suffering servant, bearing our sin and our iniquities, and that He would die. It's clear in the text um, in Isaiah 53, in verse 8 and 9. He's going to die. This servant that's supposed to bear our sins. But what is God going to do? Look at verse 10. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. Now how in the world, if you're a father here, would you ever feel like it was a pleasure to crush your child and kill them? How could you ever imagine that? This is how. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That term servant right there is used lots of different ways in Isaiah. This is the last time it is used in the singular. Every time after this, it's used as servants. Why? Because the servant, it says in verse 10, has a seed or an offspring. The other usage of that word in our Old Testaments is descendants. How can a man who dies then have descendants? You see, this is the incredible family that God is starting in Jesus Christ. That when he dies, when the grain, or when the seed goes into the ground and dies, it bears much grain, we talked about in class. When he dies, he will have offspring. The time of the Messiah, the time of the king that comes, and when he does that, it shakes everything up. Keep reading with me. Look at uh, at 54, 1 through 3. Now, let me just give you a little bit of of, um, Jewish context. If you were a woman and you were barren, according to the blessings and the curses of the covenant, God's curse was upon you if you were barren. That was the way it felt. And that's the way that it's talked about. But not in this new family. Look at 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the places of your tent and let them stretch out the the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your course. Strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right, to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Again, Poetic language, language we talked about in Isaiah. Y'all are getting tired of Isaiah, I know. But this, there's a point to this. Poetic language of what? That just because she's barren, she's going to bear children in the Lord. And in that, this picture is that her tent would expand to the point to where it would just have to keep stretching it out and, and envelop all these people. What's that a picture of? What we've been talking about on on Wednesdays, that's evangelism. That's a picture of the identity that the new covenant people would have. They would bring people in to their tents. But more than just that, was it a shame for a man 
to be a eunuch in the Old Testament? Sterile, not being able to bear children? Yes. Was it second class to be a foreigner in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant people? To come in and kind of be with them, but they weren't really with them, but they were kind of with them? Yes. Look at Isaiah 56. We already covered 55 in this great invitation. But look at 56 and what God's going to do in this new family. 56 in verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Now, he's getting ready to switch gears, but he's going to answer that later. Then he says, Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, to choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What's the name? That's important to a Jew. That's important to that society to, to pass on your name. He says, I'll give you a name that will never be cut off. I will give you a name better than sons and daughters physically. In this new family, it doesn't matter if you're a eunuch. It doesn't matter if you're a foreigner. Verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You're going to hear this, what Jesus said. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says... Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Do you see that picture? That in the family that God is preparing through this one servant that will have these offspring, he tears down all of the societal structures. There's no longer these stigmatisms for having these certain things about our physical descendants, our physical family, but that we will bear fruit to God no matter who we are. And He will accept us. He will welcome us into the house of the Lord. Now, what about the New Testament? Is there something similar in the New Testament? Where where is this found where where Christ would suffer and then He would bear children? Is is Austin just kind of like stretching that a little bit? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory." to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Do you see that? He might taste death, the suffering servant, pouring out his soul unto death for everyone. Now, how could he do that for everyone? God made him complete 
through the suffering that you see in both of those underlines. But he doesn't use the term everyone in the second verse. What does he call them? Bringing many sons to glory. Now that term sons is not a male child. The term sons means offspring. That's the word seed descendant. So Jesus, in his suffering, brought many children to glory. But he didn't just distantly claim us, yeah, those are my offspring over there. He became one of us. Keep reading, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, us, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This idea of the family of God is not a Hallmark commercial. This is the eternal purpose of God to put us in this family. To bear children unto him through the death of Jesus. And I love this. He's partaken of the flesh and blood. He is one. He shared in it. And he's not because of that. He's not ashamed to call me brother. And he's not ashamed to call you sister. He knows. It will go on to say. He knows what you have dealt with in your life. He has lived on this sod. And he understands the temptations. And that's why he is such a perfect elder brother, and a perfect high priest. We can lean on him. So in Christ, going back to that original question, we do have an eternal father. He's our elder brother who calls us brethren and welcomes us into the family, adopting us through his blood. As Paul will say later, and John will say later, he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn in the family. And I'm so thankful that we have an elder brother that's not like the one in the prodigal son story. We have one who welcomes us into the Father's house. Our heritage, our family tree, right here in this building, the people sitting here, our heritage is in Jesus Christ. And we are bonded together because of that. Let's look at our family bond. The son demands allegiance to this family. This is not one of those families where you can kind of, uh, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes that is in this time of life, where you can kind of be a teenager and drop in for a free meal and then go, you know. This is a family that you want to and you need to be a part of in the role that you play. Jesus, in a time of great crowds in Luke 14, the crowds come to him, and it's a moment of where Jesus could say anything he wanted to say. But he starts his sermon with this passage, Luke 14, 26. It says to the whole crowds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Underscore cannot. There is not an optional program of familyship here. 
that I can join and have some benefits, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really ready to fully commit to being his disciple and being part of the family of God. One of the greatest obstacles, I've heard it from several of you already, one of the greatest obstacles for someone to obey the gospel is what? When you get them to the point for them to understand truth, what's the greatest obstacle? Well, what about somebody in my family? Fill in the blank. That's important. That's important to us. But I believe the greatest obstacle of obeying the Lord is in this verse for anybody. It cuts both ways. The lost person, the person who does not know God, he must give up. She must give up her ways, her family's ways, her family's traditions, and take on the Lord's thoughts and only what he wants. But the Christian... And this is where we didn't check the box here. We didn't just say, yeah, I'm good. But the Christian must give up their family's ways, too, for Christ. Whether that's overcoming a worldly influence in your family that's trying to pull you away from the Lord, or whether that's overcoming um, a family member who was a Christian, but they just played church. They just showed up. And that wasn't their life. You'll have to overcome that too. In fact, all of us must leave home. We all must leave home if we're going to be his disciple. But when you leave home, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? If you haven't heard a thing I'm saying this morning, hear me on that. God will provide. He will provide for you a family. Look at Mark 10. Mark 10. The last text we're going to dive into this morning. Mark 10 in verse 28. This is after two very hard discussions that the disciples hear about from Jesus. He talks about if, if you're divorced and if you marry and you divorce, then if you marry again, he calls that an adultery. Second teaching, how in the world could this rich young ruler not be saved? If that's the case, then what, what are we doing here? I mean, he's blessed, surely. And Jesus says, no. He tells, he tells the rich young ruler, give up everything, and the rich young ruler won't. And then Peter says, Lord, we've, we've left everything for you. So he says that to Jesus, and here's what Jesus says to Peter, a blessing to Peter. Look at Mark 10, 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They needed that last part, because they thought a lot of first people were going to be first. He says, many who are first will be last. 
Jesus makes a promise to him and to all of us. If you left your life, if you left your family, your marriage even, your property, you will have more than you can imagine when? One day in heaven. In this life, he says. So let me ask you, brother and sister, you with me? What, what have you given up for the Lord? What have you given up for the Lord? Some of you, I know, have given up great things for God. Careers, jobs. Some of you have given up friendships. Close family relationships. Some of you, even a spouse. Some of you have given up your approval of your family that, that, that they gave you. Some has given up even the closeness that they have with their children. There's a lot that has been given up in this family. And y'all know, too, that I, I, I've, I've been open about this. I've had a rough upbringing. And um, there was a time in my life after um, the second time my, my dad went to jail that I didn't have anywhere to go. And um, I sat on my grandfather's couch. I had not seen him in 10 more years. And I was talking to him about this. This specific thing. I said, what, what am I going to do? I, my kids aren't going to have grandparents. I'm not going to have parents. What am I going to do? You know what he said? The Lord will provide. And I'm telling you, He has. He has. A hundredfold. I think about Miss Tooley. It's a widow in Kentucky that I got to know and started picking up and taking her to church. She was one of my spiritual grandmothers in college. And I remember calling her one time after a rough breakup. She told me to man up, but I think about Louie in, in high school, just coming out of the world, just became a Christian. And here was this single man in maybe late 30s, early 40s, Bible class teacher, example of godliness and purity, and invested in me. He said, hey, let's go out to eat. Hey, let's go to a game. And I saw, I, I had a father in him. And I just want to tie that back to the beginning of the lesson. A man with no offspring, Louis, definitely had offspring in the kingdom of God. He definitely had me as a child. And he raised me in Christ. I think about my brothers Josh and Brad and Brian, uh, who have been co-laborers with me in the gospel that have, have preached in different places I've preached at, um, who've been there for me always. What about that in the text? What, what about the end of verse 29 uh, that you would have, or excuse me, the end of, the middle of 30, that you would have lands, um, and some will say, uh, and property. What is that talking about? Is that like health and wealth, prosperity, that if you, you follow Jesus, you'll have a bunch of houses? Well, I'm not going to mention uh, the names of, of these folks, but we found out not too long ago 
that some of our friends knew uh, the Schiffmans, and um, they knew them because uh, they were traveling late one night. They were Christians moving from California, and uh, or traveling through from California, and they didn't have any place to go, and they needed a place to go. And they got connected with with uh, the Schiffmans, and they stayed the night. I'm going to tell you, that couple that we know, and all of us, have property and lands across this world. Some of y'all know about our heat, heating uh, fiasco. I'll tell you right now, Cammie and I have like, I don't know, 10 houses here in Amarillo. You just didn't know it till something happened. We got all kinds of property. A lot of people have, have been willing to just say, come on over. Look around this room. Really, look at, look at your brothers and sisters. This is the family of God in all of its glory and all of its mess. But we're here for each other in the name of Jesus, not because we're trying to, to uh, one-up each other, but because we want to be devoted to him and his family, to his cause, to what he's doing in our lives. Don't, please, please, don't take for granted this family of God. Use them up. Get involved. Get with them. Well, what about this? What about that? Oh, you know, that's so sweet of you that you said those things. That's very hallmark of you. But we live in the real world, Austin, and that's not my reality, and that's not how I feel about this church. I want you to know that you're not alone in that. There are different times in our lives, I'm sure, that we could say that too. A Christian told a friend of mine that sitting in church is the loneliest place that they could be in their life. A Christian said that. Part of the family of God. So number one, I just want to say, if that describes you, if you're sitting here and you, don't, you feel like you're not in this family, I'm sorry. I will try to do better. But number two, I feel sorry for you that you have not experienced the great joys of the family of God and the blessings that we have of that fellowship. That's true fellowship, not coffee and donuts. I'm talking about the bond in Jesus Christ. If you haven't experienced that, brother and sister, I'm sorry. And I pray that these lessons will encourage all of us to up our game, to be better at that. But I, I do want to say, I do want to ask the question, if that is the way that you feel, why? Why is that? I think some people, they get hurt by others somewhere along the way. They got hurt by someone who wore the name tag, family of God. And they stopped trying. Either they just give up altogether and they forsake God and will eventually forsake the family. Or, number two, they check out. They're here, they check the box of attendance, but they're checked out. They're on the roll, but they don't have a role in the family. So how do we fix that? <clears throat> how do we fix that? What are the chances of divorce in this world? I don't know. I think it used to be like 
So if the, if the statistics are 50-50, you're going to get divorced. Should you not ever get married? Is there something wrong with marriage? No, no. It is God-ordained. It is God-designed. It's us that have screwed it up. It's us that have made a blunder of marriage. And it is the same of a local church family. You are worshiping, you know, with sinners, with people who do make mistakes, who aren't what they ought to be. And you are too. And you may not be the family you need to be or maybe have fallen short in the past. Let us have grace to everybody here and give them the benefit of the doubt that they're trying to do that the best they can. And let's not hold grudges. We will never move past that unless we let those go and give them that benefit. Paul instructs Timothy, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, it's a couple different letters, um, and even in, in uh, one of the other epistles, a couple letters to Timothy, what did he have a problem with? People despising him, despising his youth in Ephesus. You see what Paul says there? He says, those people who've not been family to you, forget them. What does he say? Treat them like they're a father. Treat them like they're your mother. Whether they, they want to or not. Whether they understand this idea of the family of God, here it is. And here's what you need to be an example of to them. So I'll just pray. If you're struggling with this concept, I don't feel like I'm part of any of this. Then you make the first step. You be who God has called you to be and, work, and then let, let everybody else answer to the Lord. But you be that family member. We must examine ourselves. And this is back to that passage. We must examine ourselves about Mark 10. Either Jesus was giving a promise that you and I can stand on. Or he's a liar. Well, I'm not going to go with the second one. So if he made a promise that you and I can stand on, and that's not happening, what's happening? We're not the promise. We're not the family of God. And I can't make a decision for anybody but myself. I am going to be part of the family. And I'm going to treat you as a mother, as a father, as a sister, and as a brother. And I pray that God would help us, even if everyone in my local church, say I'm in a church of 10 people and 9 out of 10 don't even like me. Guess what? Guess who's getting invited to lunch? going to invite you anyway because we're family and that's what God says. That's what God says and that's what I'm going to be even if you don't want to be my family member. And I hope that you can also do the same for me when I'm not what I should be. Are you up to the task? Are you up to being part of the family of God? If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you are his offspring. You are the son and daughter that he has brought to glory. And what great hope and promises that he's given to us. And I know, I know of some great, beautiful things that are done among our family here.
But if you're not, if you have not joined Jesus, become part of His family, taken His name upon you, that you're no longer Austin, but you are His, and you want to become a Christian this morning, that would be the greatest thing that you could ever do in your life right now while we stand and sing.